Welcome to the Upper Perkiomen Community Church Podcast. Join us on Sundays at 258 Main Street, East Greenville, Pennsylvania. Refreshments at 9 a.m. Worship at 9.30 a.m. Or visit us online at upcconline.org. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy our teaching time with our special guest speaker. to see an off-the-wall house up in an urban area up in Allentown, so I'm glad to hear that Heath's coming on board, and maybe that free up Spencer to kind of think big picture and maybe get something up in the city someday. I think there's a statistic we pulled that a, a quarter, quarter of the kids in the U.S. are growing up without a father in their home. I think there's a huge concentration of that in our urban area up in Allentown, at least a half, if not two-thirds. I feel that something like a discipleship house would really help these kids be able to take a next step having people pour into them uh, through Christ and letting them know what it's like to live in a house where God is, God is exalted and their peers exalt God and their leaders do as well. So it's one of our main philosophies is getting as many kids and teens invited over our homes in our community groups and often as much as possible so they can see a home where, where God is exalted and true marriage is lived out. We're going to be in 1 John chapter 1 verses 5 through 10. The benefit of going to preach in here is that I don't need to think through something to preach on because it's given to me. The curse is, today I get to preach to you about your sin. So I guess it's an every Sunday occurrence, right? But today we're really doubling down on it. So don't think that I just came and I'm like, hey, I really want to beat up the people at UPCC and make them love Jesus more by pointing out their sin. It was a sign to me, you know that, because the first text in 1 John 1 was preached the other week, but it's a good passage. John likes to, in his book and in his letters, he's a little different than Paul. You find Paul being very structured, and Paul will take a theological section. He will develop belief systems in the beginning of his letters, and then he gets very practical, and he'll, he'll go into in his letters, hey, if you believe all these things, here's how you get to live it. So that's often why in Paul's letters you see this deep theology in the beginning then laid out in practice. John's not like that. I don't know if he's a little ADD or not, but what John likes to do as he's writing to the churches that he's been influential in, he likes to kind of jump back and forth between theology and the practice of it. Here's what you believe or think. Here is right thinking, and here is right action. So he's not as structured or organized, so it's hard to really lay things out. As I go into today's, he's He's dealing with that. He's bouncing back and forth between a simple belief and then how it influences how you live. Now, I know that school is back in session for my kids and I imagine for all kids here. So in your science classes, if you're a teen or a little bit younger than a teen, sometimes you will be involved in an experiment and you'll have something that's called a hypothesis. Can anybody define what a hypothesis is for me? An educated guess. And then what do you do with that hypothesis? You prove it. Now there's an English equivalent a little bit to that, and that is a thesis. So I was an English major in college and had to write a lot, a lot, a lot, too many papers. And you have a thesis. So in a thesis, whether in an English class or whether it's in 
a seminary class or whatever class it is in a thesis, it kind of works a bit like a hypothesis, except you aren't doing experiments around it. You are coming up with a thesis statement and saying, this is what I'm going to be talking to you about, or this is what I'm seeking to prove, and then you go into the implications of it. John is going to do that with today's writing when he starts out in verse 5 of chapter 1 when he says, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you. The message referring back to verses 1 through 4 and what we receive, the word of life through Christ. Here's the message. That God is light and in him is no darkness at all. That is the thesis statement, this general claim that he's making. But he is now not going to proceed to prove that statement. He's going to assume, now if you go through the book of John, what kind of audience is he writing to? He's writing to a group of believers that he believes are believers. Often John is used to convince unbelievers or try to establish to believers whether they're a Christian or not, but what his intention is is actually to bolster true believers in their faith in what he's doing. But he is not going to seek to prove this statement at all. He's going to lay out his thesis and acknowledge that he believes it to be true, and so do all of his hearers. But then he's going to go and talk about, instead of proofs, implications. And he's going to say, if you believe this, then this is true about you. John delights to paint God in the picture of, of light. The concept of God being light is huge in his mind. I assume that he's referring back some in his mind to the Old Testament, constantly throughout the Old Testament, God is pictured as a fire and by implication, a light that proceeds. If you were to read through the Gospel of John, right away in his introduction to that book in verse 5, he talks about the light shining in the darkness, referring to Christ. A few verses later in John 1 verses 9, he talks about the true light that gives light is coming into the world. In chapter 8 of John in verse 12, he emphasized what Jesus says when Jesus says and calls himself the light of the world. If you would proceed through the Gospel of John about 40 times in the Gospel of John, the word light is mentioned. This is a huge concept in his mind as he gets into his first letter to the churches and he conveys the concept that God is light. Now he's going to go through about six implications in here. I think it's somewhere around that. Six implications in life if you believe that God is light and he's going to attack it through both a positive means and a negative means. Because in place in the churches, as is in place in every church throughout all the past, present, and future, there are those who are going to disagree with John, disagree with the gospel that he's preached, disagree with the concepts, and they're going to challenge them. So in this letter, he's seeking to address some of their challenges. First implication in verse 5. If God truly is light, those who know God walk in the light. Verse 5. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. So he's saying, as he paints this picture of God being light, if God is this source of light, and you walk with God and in God's paths, then it's assumed that you are a beneficiary of that light and that your, light is, your life is encompassed by that, that you are a walker in the light. And that concept being, if we work through Scripture on that, 
the concept that light exposes darkness. Walking with God, following Jesus, exposes your sin and the ways that you are not like God or are not like Christ. Now we look at these and we think this is one of those no-duh statements in Scripture. Obviously, if you're walking with God and God is light, then you would then live your life according to that belief. If you assent mentally and you think God is God, God is light, then you would think by implication that if you assume that statement to be true, that you would live accordingly. Now we know in life with humanity you can't assume anything, right? In our context of, of Allentown, we have a lot of Hispanics, we have a lot of Dominicans, a lot of Puerto Ricans, we also have a lot of Syrians. Two different segments of beliefs within the Syrians. You have Orthodox Christianity that fled Syria during the first persecution from the Islamic world, from Muslims. And now you have a second group of Syrians that have come over in the last five years that are Islamic, that are Muslims, that believe in Islam. I meet them constantly. Oftentimes, I can tell the difference just by their appearance. But in conversation, they will always identify by one and the other. And often all you have to do to identify that is, hey, what do you think of the latest wave of immigration coming over from Syria? And if they say they can't stand it, they're Orthodox Christian. If they say they welcome it, then they're probably Muslim. But as I have conversations with them, they are those things, but then my conversation proceeds to, okay, well, what does that mean for your life? To be Orthodox Christian or to be Muslim? And very often, they identify with that, but it does nothing to their life. They are culturally Orthodox Christian or culturally Muslim. We have grown up in a nation, if you were born here, if you were raised here, that is quasi-culturally Christian. For all of history in this nation, if you walked up to somebody and say, what do you believe? They would probably tend to believe that Jesus is God and that God exists. I know times have changed. Things are different. We can go into history and argue whether we ever were truly a Christian nation. But I do believe that there was the thread of that being the majority. So that means that there are people who are growing up and in place in this nation who would identify and say, yes, I believe that God is God, Jesus is God, and God is light. But it doesn't matter a lick of difference in how they live their life. They place themselves under the category of Christ follower culturally, but not really. So here John is dealing with a segment of people who are calling themselves Christ followers in the early church. And he is saying that they are ascending to these concepts. They are saying the same things and what they think. But in how they live it out in community, what they think does not address what they do. And he is saying, if you truly acknowledge these things, then you will live like it. So he's not as concerned with theology or belief. He's saying we're all agreed. But he's going to make an argument based on ethical grounds that those whom he knows to be true Christians who really are Christ followers, who believe that God is light, will live certain kinds of lives. And these lives will be lives that are characterized by the light shining in their darkness and acknowledging sin in their own lives. That's the first implication. Second implication is in verse 6. That those who claim to know God yet walk in darkness lie. Verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie 
and do not practice the truth. So he now challenges these attackers of theology and belief. He says, if you believe that God is light, you cannot claim a walk with God if your life and you, in your life, you believe there is no sin or that you're fine and can do what you want. So these are people that claim Christ and that are part of the church that when John attacks through his letters their way of life or other Christians say, hey, this is not consistent, they call foul and they say, you are not true. We are fine. We truly are God followers. I mean, the closest thing I can come to represent this in today's day and age of those who do no wrong is in my concept, this is a church filled with professional basketball players, right? Do you ever see a professional basketball player call on a foul or some kind of infraction and not argue with it? Maybe 20 years ago they didn't, but now it's like constant. It's annoyingly so constant. I did wrong. I do no wrong. It's either the ref's fault or the other guy's infraction. Because that's what this church, these people are filled with. They're all NBA players in the front rows saying, there is nothing wrong with us. We're good. We're the elite. And he's saying, you are lying about your relationship with God. You are being double-life Christians. In their belief, and this is kind of the early church belief, I don't know many today that believe that, but in their belief, they believe that, that God is kind of detached from the material world, that God is far above our common existence. He's kind of the old school king that doesn't walk among the peasants because they're peasants and I can't get myself to be beneath myself and be with them. So they even shun some of the implications about Jesus, about God coming to earth in the incarnation. And they're viewing life in two distinct fears. There's a physical and there's a spiritual. And they're saying sin, because it is physical, is unimportant. We shouldn't deal with those things. What is important is our soul, our inner being, and God only looks at that. Well, in a sense, we'll say, yes, access to heaven is granted not because we are free from sin, but because God sees Jesus' righteousness, right? We believe that. But then there's implications to that, that walkers in the light will not continue to walk in darkness because a holy God of light expects his followers to grow in that light and change and grow in holiness, so these are ones that have the, they believe the passport stamp for entry into heaven, but it does not have implications for their life. So they lie about their relationship with God. And they're also guilty because they do not know the truth. We lie, and he's saying they lie, and they do not practice the truth. They are not having their lives exposed by God's truth. They are not allowing error. They're not allowing sin to be exposed by God's truth. So they're lying to themselves. Verse 7, another implication. Those who truly know God have their lives impacted by the light. Verse 7. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Go back to the beginning, verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with him, who's the him referring to? God, right? So, I mean, I, I'm, I'm looking at the positive and negative, and I come to verse 7, and I assume that what he's going to say in kind of a counterstatement to that, he's going to say, but if, another conditional statement, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we would expect him to say, we have fellowship with him, referring back to God. But he flips it, doesn't it? If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. 
Instead of going to the vertical, he goes to the horizontal. And he's saying this, if you are a walker in the light, genuine fellowship happens. He's saying there is no real fellowship with God that doesn't imply that you have real fellowship with others. Real fellowship with God leads to fellowship with other believers. He's getting across the concept that those who walk in darkness crush community. And that's kind of obvious, isn't it? Have you ever been around a perfect person or a person that thinks they're perfect? How does that work out for community? I mean, it crushes community. They're living a dishonest spiritual life. If it's always your sin that affects the relationship, then that relationship ain't going to last too long at all. See, their spiritual walk as they go about life, these, these that are countering John's belief, these that are not truly walking in the light of God's word, their spiritual walk isn't about assessing their sin and experiencing true healing forgiveness. Their communities are not transformational. There is not change of life going on. Why? Because their lives are not being exposed by the light. We see these churches Walk into an old school denominational church. You'll see a bunch of people meeting together. With life is great, life isn't wrong. Let's not bring up sin in each other's midst because that just messes up a church, does it? (laughs) To me, if you aren't dealing with sin in your midst, then your church is pointless. It's a social club. They die off and good. Let their buildings be filled with those that will transform life by exposing life to the brightness of God's word. So you want to know how a struggling church can experience life again? It's not just coming together and being excited and doing good things. It's by confession of sin and forgiveness. That is how a church goes from struggling and pointless to growing and on mission. It gets past this this false elitism that we have everything together, and it gets to the reality of the Christian walk. Because guys, you and I are sinful human beings. You know your sin more than anybody else in this room. God knows your sin in even a greater way. And if you choose to live in a community that does not expose you to God and his light, your life will become a cesspool of sin and be pointless to yourself and those around you. You grow as a Christian through having the spotlight of God's word shine into your darkness and confessing your sin and asking for forgiveness. Because if you don't, the end of verse 7, the blood of Jesus, his son, will never cleanse you from all sin, if you don't acknowledge your sin and repent and believe. Sins are forgiven. Those who walk in the light are purified from every sin. John is here bashing this whole material versus immaterial, physical versus spiritual. And he's saying, he's saying Jesus came to earth to, to engage in the act physically of dying for sin, to cleanse you from your sin. There's a reason The spiritual realm came down to the physical realm in a physical way to die for their sins. 
And unless they open up their lives to that and embrace that, it would leave them unforgiven, unimpacted by the blood of Christ on the cross. In our fellowship, in our church communities, there must be acknowledgement that there is sin, that there is imperfection. From the elder board, from the pastoral team, from the members, from the deacons, to the kids in the nursery, we are all sinful human beings, past, present, and future, until one glorious day, we're all perfected. And that is the reason why heaven is heaven and not earth. But we often forget to dwell on those realities in our Christian communities. We kind of gloss right over the sin realm. Let's instead jump right over and get the forgiveness and healing and grace. Why? Because it's appealing and fun, isn't it? I mean, I would have much rather come in here this morning and preach to you about forgiveness and healing and grace instead of, hey guys, I'm here as a living reminder of sin in my midst and sin in your midst. But we almost need in our lives, especially as Americans in American Christianity, where we deal with the reality that sin is sin and it's in our lives. I encourage you, a book I was given when I graduated from seminary uh, was called Valley of Vision. It's a collection of Puritan prayers. Now the Puritans, again, like any center of Christianity, collection of Christianity in this world, don't get everything right. But one thing they do get right is you cannot read through them and not be impacted by the reality that they realized that they were sinful, flawed human beings. And their prayers are somehow more vivid when they realize that they are desperately at the foot of the cross needing the grace of God in their lives. I wonder if we just spent some more time dealing with the reality not of, well, I know there's sin in our midst. It's the people next to me. But I know that there's sin in our midst, and it especially reigns here. How that would change our communities. How much that would be a witness to the world around us. When people are ranting and railing against the church and they say, oh, those places are just full of sinful human beings and hypocrites. And you can sit there across from them and say, you're exactly right. And I'm one of them and you'd fit right in. We are sinful, flawed human beings. Another implication, verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Those who claim to be without sin lie to themselves. And I kind of got ahead of myself before when they're looking at this concept of walking in darkness. He hadn't really gotten to them and said, hey, you are actually saying that you are sinless. Here he gets to it and says, you are saying that you are sinlessly perfected. This, this is in place in America. The old Wesleyan belief that they've by and large shunned with, but there's still some remnants of it, believe that in the sanctification process, you reach a point when you are sinlessly perfect. You have this big ramp up in sanctification, and now you can do no wrong. It makes arguments at home so much easier, doesn't it? Talking with my wife, and I'm like, just sorry, babe, you just haven't reached that point yet. I am there. And that's what they're claiming. They're claiming this sinless perfection where they all are now completely pure. But John says, hey, you, sorry to break it to you, 
but you are not sinlessly perfect. You know, they may view themselves as being in an exclusive club above the rest. They may even still be passionate about their faith, but they are deluded. They have deceived themselves. They view themselves as the elite when they truly are walkers in the darkness and not walkers in the light. And I don't think they're just being con people where they're trying to portray themselves with being perfect, but they really know they aren't, and they're just kind of portraying themselves as this image they're casting off. I honestly believe that what John is attacking is a core belief of theirs, that they believe, honestly, that they've reached that point. And he's saying you view yourself as being spiritually elite, but in reality, you are a spiritual fool. You know, those people in our midst, are they in our church communities? Maybe we have to wrestle with what separation of church families from other church families mean. And have you ever been part of a church where there are those who are spiritually elite and have arrived because of their standards of righteousness? And if you don't embrace them, well, then you're just the riffraff. You're spiritually immature. You haven't arrived yet. That's a little closer to home. We know of or have been part of churches that are like that, haven't we? It's another form, but it's the same thing. It's still spiritual darkness because nobody has arrived. It's spiritual arrogance. It's people who think they have no needs or at least very few needs because all or most everything of their life is in order. And if only everybody else were as ordered as I am, this world would be a much better place. The church would be better. The leaders would be better. And they've forgotten to allow the light to shine into their darkness. It's a lack of teachability. It's a, I got it together. I just exist to inform the rest of you how to get it all together. There is no such thing as a sinless perfection. And this is deeper than a head pursuit. This is a life pursuit. It gets into the head and it leads to the heart and it goes to the hands. Another implication in verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Those who truly know God honestly and continuously acknowledge and confess their sin. So let's be clear by the verb tenses that he's using here. It's very clear to us that he is saying that those who are walkers in the light are those who are repenting believers. Not believers that have repented at one point and received the grace of God. How do I know that? Look at verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from unrighteousness. And he's not just getting confused. John attended Greek class. He knows that he's choosing a present tense verb that has lasting implications. He's not dealing here with the moment of salvation. The moment of salvation, we confessed that we were reliant on ourselves, that we were desperate for a Savior to save us. We confessed that we were sinners and enemies of God who needed him. And at that moment, we are once and truly justified. We are saved. But the process goes on, doesn't it? We call it sanctification that leads to glorification. In John's mind, it's the whole thing. He's saying, if you have once confessed when the light of God's word shines into your light, you will continuously be a confessing person. 
And you don't look at that as somehow you can one day attain sinless perfection and be seen as righteous before God's eyes and saved. You are already saved. God sees Jesus' righteousness. But you recognize then you are a sinner that needs changing. You embrace the way of Christ and embrace that walk with a light shining in your life. So you are a confessor. These are those who humbly admit their own sin consistently and constantly. These are the ones that look at their own life before they look at the lives of others. They look at sin in their midst and say, what is my part in it before dealing with the sin that is in others' midst? Those who truly know God honestly and continuously acknowledge their sin. Verse 10 is going to teach us that those who claim to be without sin make God a liar and do not know him. Verse 10. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. This is John for a bit kind of sparring with his opponents in the ring. This to me is when John just kind of pulls it back and unleashes a haymaker for the knockout round. He's saying, you are not a follower of Christ. As a matter of fact, you don't even know God. As a matter of fact, it's more hostile than that. If you think you have reached sinless perfection and that you're sinlessly elite, or that you do not have sin in your own midst and do not expose yourself to the light of God's word, then you are, in fact, making God a liar. You are calling him a liar. He summarizes it all right there with that haymaker punch. And whether these are active claims, and they say, I have reached spiritual perfection, as it looks like some of them did, or whether these are passive. And these are just people who never confess any sin in community. I mean, if you look at your life and you think, hmm, when's the last time I've ever went up to somebody and say, I've sinned against you, whether your spouse, your child, your parent, a neighbor, somebody in your community, a leader, somebody you poured into. Maybe you're not actively walking around with a sign on you that says, sinlessly perfect. But by the fact that you're not presently engaging in confessing your sin and making it right, maybe you don't speak the words or wear the sign, but passively you've embraced this belief. These people may be religious, but John says they are not redeemed. And he exposes them to the light of God's word. If you would walk into my house, you'd come through my living room, follow through my dining room, and go into our back room, where in the corner of there, I have an office corner. It's a desk, it's a file cabinet, and until before last night, it was messy. But if you go in there, and the lights are off, and the shades are drawn, and you walk back into the room that houses my office corner, I could say, this is clean, see? And you would say, I can't see to tell if it is or isn't, because it is dark in here. You'd have to take my word on it, that it was clean. Nine times out of ten, I'd be wrong. But if you walk into a dark room, everything's clean. Moms of young kids, just do that. If somebody comes over to come to your house, they come to see you in your house, just leave all the lights off and do it at dark. Your house will look clean. <laughs> if you get frustrated by the day you're putting the kids to bed and you just can't stand a messy house, just walk around blind. You'll be fine. It'll all seem clean. If there is no light turned on, just don't turn on the lights. Because once you turn on the lights, 
there will be many evidences that a two-year-old and a one-year-old live in your house. If you come into my house and turn on the light to the back room, there will be many evidences that I work back there and I like to leave stuff out. Christians, if you have the light shut off to your life, you know, maybe you will someday embrace the belief that you are sinlessly perfect. I mean, if no light's on, where's the mess, right? If you stay away from the word of God, if you stay away from your community, that is the secret to a big ego. Just live your life alone. Just blame everybody else around you. But don't read the word of God. Don't open yourself up to the Holy Spirit. Don't open yourself up to the correction of others. Don't open yourself up to spiritual leaders to speak into it. And then you can wear your sign. Spiritually Sinlessly perfect. And you know what? You at least have deceived your own self. You cannot turn on the light and be good forever. A wise theologian writing on this passage says this, Generally speaking, darkness is an atmosphere that denies the truth of God and forbids his light to enter. It's like a fog on a sunny morning, almost like this morning. That is so thick it obscures the way we are driving and makes us wonder if the sun is out at all. Darkness is where God's glory cannot be found. To be sure, Satan creates darkness and is its prince. But we also are capable of doing the same through our fallen choices, our deception, and our sinfulness. And before long, we become so accustomed to darkness that we forget what true light really is. Is that you? Or do you humbly and honestly see and confess your sin? I urge you today to be walkers in the light, to allow the light to permeate your life and shed its light in the darkness and change your sin. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for you. I thank you for your word. I thank you for the light that exposes our sin. Help me to embrace that in my life. Help others to embrace that in yours, that we would be a redeemed people that are a confessing people. Change us and grow us. Thank you for your patience in our lives and your Holy Spirit that works in us. For it's in Jesus' precious and holy name we pray. Amen.